0: Jesus knew it was time to go to Jerusalem. He had been teaching his disciples for well over two years, but there was still one crucial lesson that they needed to learn, perhaps the greatest lesson of life. And so Jesus took his disciples and traveled north of the Sea of Galilee, about 25 miles, to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It was the northernmost area that Jesus had taken his disciples to in the Bible land, and he took them there for a specific reason. Caesarea Philippi was the center of worship, pagan worship, for centuries. You can go all the way back to the Old Testament and see that that's where Baal worship was. It was a place of great beauty in the foothills of Mount Hermon. The water would come down from the mountain and and join into beautiful streams, especially in the springtime, and then they would flow all the way down to the Sea of Galilee in what we call the Jordan River. And so in this beautiful place, pagan worship was popular. In the Old Testament, it was the worship of Baal. Baal. In 330 BC when Alexander the Great conquered this territory with his armies uh, he set up pan worship. It was the Greek goat god who's half man half, go- uh, half goat playing a flute and this was the center in what we call Caesarea Philippi. Well then the Romans conquered the Greeks and of course whenever one nation conquers another they set up their own gods uh, as a tribute to the victory that they just received and so that's exactly what Rome did and they got rid of all the other gods and established a white gleaming beautiful new temple designed to worship the emperor Caesar himself. When Herod the Great passed off the scene, his son Philip decided to dedicate this place to his dad and himself, and so he named it Caesarea for Caesar and Philippi for himself. And when Jesus brought his disciples to this area, you saw the gleaming temple in honor to emperor worship. In fact, in that place, uh, the ancient religions still lingered in the air. Baal worship that once brooded over the place was evident. The classical gods of the Greeks. And of course now, which has dominated the scene, emperor worship to Augustus Caesar of Rome. And it was in this place, Caesarea Philippi, That Jesus took his disciples. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, gives us the account. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you people say, or who do people say the Son of Man is? In Mark's gospel, it's simply this Who do people say that I am? That question of Jesus is going to set the scene for the most important life lesson anyone can learn. And it's interesting, the response that that question received. The the first response we might call the popular view. For the disciples answered the question, well, the people say that, uh, um, some say you're John the Baptist. Now that was a pretty decent answer because at the end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi it was predicted that John the Baptist would come back and uh, he was kind of the forerunner of the Messiah coming and so not a bad answer. Some people say Elijah the one who's taken without dying who again would come again predicted in the prophetic uh, scriptures. In fact some people think that John the Baptist is a version of Elijah come back in the flesh. So those were two very popular answers. The third was Jeremiah, one of the greatest of all prophets. One of the prophets who stood strong in the midst of the days when Judah went into captivity to the Babylonians. The one who wept for the loss of God's name and God's glory. And the one who predicted hope. I know the plans I have for you the Lord said through Jeremiah to the nation of Israel. Not to wipe you out, but to give you a future and a hope. So that was a good answer. And then simply a catch-all, you're one of the prophets, they said in verse 14. And again, not a bad answer. Because it was said that there was one coming like Moses. There would be a new prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 17 predicted And everyone indeed identified that person as the great Messiah that was coming. So I I think their answers were respectable, but they were somewhat inadequate. Albert Hubbard once said, public opinion is the judgment of the incapable many as opposed to that of the discerning few. If you want to find out who God really is, taking a poll doesn't help. People have been searching for the historical Jesus. Uh, It was popularized in the early part of the 20th century in 1906 when Albert Schweitzer wrote his book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And he came up with uh, many weak and, and improper answers to that great question. Time Magazine did a study just a few years back. The same thing, the scholars are searching for the authentic Jesus. And so people speculate and they come up with opinions, but often wrong. So the popular view was decent, but did not go deep enough. So then Jesus said to his disciples in verse 15, What about you? Who do you say that I am? And so now we go from the popular view to the disciples' view. We might call this the believer's view. Peter is going to be the spokesman for all the believers. By the way, it's interesting when you read the parallel count in Mark's gospel, chapter 8, when the question was asked, who do people say that I am? Everyone chimed in. It was like being in elementary school class and everyone knows the answer and they have their hand raised and they want to be called on. But when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Apparently, there was an awkward silence, like in grade school, when no one knows the answer. But Peter spoke up, and Peter gave an amazing answer in verse 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So the first thing he said is, you are the Messiah. Christ or the Messiah. It's translated in different ways. It means exactly the same thing. It's referring to the anointed one. That prophet who was predicted long ago to be like Moses but greater than Moses. Greater than all the prophets. He's a prophet yes but more than that. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, when Andrew had met Jesus Christ, he's the one who went running to his brother Simon and said, We found the Messiah. When the woman at the well in John chapter 4 was talking with Jesus, she said, I know when Messiah comes, he'll explain all this to us. And Jesus said to her, The one you're speaking to, I'm the Messiah. And when Jesus was on trial, John's Gospel chapter 14, the high priest said to Jesus, "Are you the Christ, the son of the living God, the son of the blessed one?" And Jesus said, "I am." Oh, it's abundantly clear Jesus knew who he was, and he was the anointed one. You anoint kings and priests and prophets. And Jesus is all three. He's the prophet, priest, and king, anointed as the chosen one of God, come to save us. But the disciples' answer made it clear he was more than just a prophet. He's the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That is, he shares in essence and nature with the God who is. He indeed comes as one representing the Lord. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. That popular verse we quote from John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, who is Jesus, he is the Son of the God who lives, who's come to reveal the Father to us, to reveal our plight of sin, and to reveal to us the way we can be saved. And it's very interesting what Jesus said after Peter's answer. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You and I can often be confused and in the dark, and we need divine revelation to turn the light on in our hearts and minds. And that's what the Bible does. And the work of the Holy Spirit, who illuminates, who enlightens, who gives us understanding when we read the Bible, and shows us the person of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Simon, great answer. You nailed it, spot on. Jesus is the son of the living God and this is the message of the Father. <laughs> but then Jesus dropped the bomb. He said in verse 21, or the scriptures say, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised from the dead. That sent shockwaves through the disciples. They're all hearing this. They they saw that Peter's answer was, was commended as good and accurate and spot on, but now... We go from the identity of Jesus to the mission of Jesus and the disciples are thoroughly confused. You see their view of Messiah was that he would be like a military conquering hero. Some great divine superhuman being who would come in and crush all the world powers. He would gather the Jews together as a powerful nation The other nations would oppose, Messiah would conquer them and set up a kingdom that would last forever. That's their view of the Messiah. And when Jesus said, yes, I am the Messiah, but I have to go to Jerusalem. From the northern part of Israel, he said, I must now go down to the south. Fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, he set his face like a flint. I must needs go to Jerusalem. I have an appointment there. And it's on a cross. And so what did Peter do? Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Imagine the gall. He just called Jesus the son of the living God. He called him the anointed one, the Messiah. And then he says, oh, by the way, you're wrong. How many times do you and I do that? We call Jesus by name our savior and our lord and our sovereign and then when he gives us his plan we say sorry that's not going to happen peter rebuked jesus by saying never lord this shall never happen to you i'm sure peter was confident that he would defend Jesus to the death. He's the one who pulled out the sword in the garden and tried to fight off all the soldiers that came to arrest Jesus. He's the one who told Jesus, everyone else might fall away, I never will. I think Peter probably meant what he said, but how ridiculous it is to try to correct the Son of God. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Not that Peter was actually Satan, but it's defined in the next few words. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. That's Satan's work to establish a world that works on a human philosophy that is tied to human concerns, that evaluates wealth and prestige and significance and position in this world as the most important things. That's the devil's work. And Jesus said, I'm on a mission for God, the Father, my Father. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. We need to keep in mind the concerns of God, even in the midst of a time like this. And so, after Peter rebuked Jesus, Jesus rebukes Peter. He tells him that real discipleship is taking up your cross and following me, losing your life to follow my life. That's the right view. Whoever wants to save his life must lose it. He says in verse 25, whoever loses his life for me will save it. After all, after all, what good is it if someone gains the whole world but loses their soul? Well, that's a question we need to be asking ourselves right now. All of us who felt like we were gaining the world and our wealth was increasing at an unprecedented pace, and now it all comes crashing down like no one expected, faster than anyone could have ever imagined. What's the profit to gain the whole world but lose your soul? I think the Lord is saying to us, what about your soul? I've given you some time to think. You're not working. You're not socializing as you used to. Things have come to a standstill because I want you to be still and know that I am God. What about your soul? And then Jesus said to them, again, something else that was probably very shocking, I tell you, some of you who are standing here are not going to taste death before you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So the disciples' answer was good, but it also was inadequate because it didn't bring with it the conviction of obedience. It didn't bring, their belief didn't bring along with it the surrender to the will of God, the dying to self. Not my will, but thine be done. And that's why this story doesn't end until we get into the next chapter, Matthew chapter 17. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Now, traditionally, this is said to be Mount Tabor. But that's about 40 miles south of Caesarea Philippi. It's 1,200 feet in elevation, and it was already occupied. There was a Hasmonean fortress on the top of it. It wasn't a place where you could really get alone. But right next to Caesarea Philippi was the the largest mountain in all Israel, Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet above sea level. It, It was a place where you could go and get alone. And my take is, this is the high mountain that Jesus took the inner circle, the three disciples to, to give them one more lesson and one more chance to get the answer right to the question, who am I? The Bible tells us in chapter 17 in verse 2 that there Jesus was transfigured before them. You might know that the Greek word is metamorphao, where we get the English metamorphosis. And it truly means that the outward appearance changes to reflect the true inner nature. So that beautiful butterfly is actually reflecting its its true nature once it goes through metamorphosis. Jesus was transfigured before them. See, he had been fighting all along to keep his divinity veiled within his humanity. But now for a moment, he removes the veil, and people see the Son of God shining in his strength. His face was shining like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. In fact, Luke tells us in chapter 9, as bright as a flash of lightning, Jesus, without anything holding back, the divinity coming through. Where we reflect light, he radiates light. He's the source. You and I are like like reflectors. We have to have something shine on us before we'll shine at all. But Jesus was shining because he is the light of the world. This was like the inauguration of a king who had come to establish his throne and began his reign over the world. And that's exactly what it is because Messiah means king. And Jesus has come to reign as king. Just then, verse 3, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. This is fascinating. Moses has been dead for 1,400 years. (laughs) Elijah has been dead for about 900 years. But these two ultimate figureheads of the Old Testament now come back. They are alive. They've always been alive. But they have a chance to revisit earth. By the way, Moses, for the first time, gets to set his feet on the Holy Land. And they represent the prophets. They represent the Messiah who would come, like Moses. They represent all the answers that people have given. And by the way, what were they talking about? This is fascinating. Matthew doesn't tell us, but Luke does. When he recounts this story, Luke 9, they appeared in glorious splendor, that is both Moses and Elijah were in some some type of glorified form. And they were talking with Jesus. They spoke with him about his exodus, his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. You see, in chapter 16, Jesus said, I have to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And the disciples didn't get it. But now he's talking with Moses, and he's talking with Elijah about the cross, about the crucifixion, about the resurrection, I'm sure. And the disciples are hearing all of this, and they're probably somewhat very confused. In fact, the Bible tells us that Peter then said to Jesus, this is chapter 17 of Matthew, verse 4, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters. One for you, one, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. The other gospel writers tell us Peter didn't know what to say. There are two kinds of people who talk. Those who have something to say and those who have to say something. And here Peter, not knowing what to say, just starts talking. And he does a pretty poor job of it. He says, let's just put everyone on the same level. Let's build a shelter like in the Feast of Booths. One for Moses and one for Elijah and one for you, Jesus. We'll just honor you and this will be a great Bible conference and this is so amazing. And a cloud appears. It's been 600 years since anyone saw this cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud. Years Since anyone heard the voice, come from the cloud. Verse 5, while Peter was speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And now we get the father's view. The popular view was decent. He's a prophet. The disciples' view was better. He's the son of the living God but apparently the disciples thought they could change his plan and rebuke him and tell him he was wrong. Listen to the father's view. This is my son. It's not one of the prophets. Jesus called him my father, and now the father calls him my son, one in essence and nature. Jesus is God incarnate. God come in the flesh And as Hebrews chapter 1 says, with the exact nature and character of the Father. This is my son whom I love. Well, that's important. Hey, Peter, when I love someone, that doesn't mean that they are isolated from problems because this son I love is going to suffer. Just because Jesus is God in the flesh doesn't mean that you can rebuke him when he talks about the plan that I've designed for the salvation of the world. Just because God loves you and me does not mean that we're going to be kept from times of suffering like in this virus. He loves us. He loves us so much he sent his son to die for us. He's not going to give up on us. But just like his son, will pass through difficult times. Our life is to be taking up the cross of Christ as a true follower of Jesus. This is my son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. What a great statement. Nothing that Jesus did ever displeased the father. He was sinless, Jesus was, in thought, word, and deed. He who knew no sin was about ready to become a sin offering for us. I am pleased with what he says. I am pleased with what he's done. And I am pleased with what he's going to do as he makes his way from the north down to the city of Jerusalem to die on a cross. And then the last phrase is very interesting listen to him (laughs) if he is my son whom i love with whom i am well pleased peter listen you and i need to start listening to the voice of god you say where is the voice of god i see no cloud i hear no audible voice here's the voice of god it's the word of god listen to jesus Yeah, but I've got my own view of the way things should take place. Die to your own views. We need to be informed by the truth of Scripture and from that, view this world accurately. Jesus has the final word. You see, when the cloud comes and the voice speaks from heaven, then the Bible tells us when the cloud lifted, They didn't see anyone else except Jesus. The scriptures tell us that Jesus came and touched the disciples. They had fallen down and they were terrified. Verse 7, he said, get up. Don't be afraid. The purpose of this experience, this dramatic display of my divinity on the mountain is not to terrify you, but to comfort you. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw Jesus only. Jesus supersedes Moses. If you only have Moses, you have harsh law. Jesus supersedes Elijah. If you only have the prophets, sometimes it's just wild speculation without uh, any uh, clear truth to, to guide us in those images and thoughts. It was John the Baptist who said... Jesus must increase. I must decrease. And here's the most dramatic display of that wonderful truth. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Jesus has the final word. Periodically, there are moments in our lives that are game changers. I think in my own history of 1963 when JFK was assassinated and even though I was only 10 years old I realized it changed the world how about 2001, 9-11 that changed our nation sometimes these game changers are personal you might have the loss of a business and no one else is suffering as badly as you are but it's a game changer for you Sometimes it's national, like 9-11. Sometimes it's local, like a flood. Sometimes it's global, like a virus. We have not seen anything like this in modern history of a global wake-up call where Almighty God has allowed through his providence and in his providence to wean us from our weak ways of thinking and living and to bring us back to what really matters. It's like a cloud in a voice, and when we lift up our eyes, we should see Jesus only. That's exactly what this is all about, to get us thinking straight about the God who is so the answer to the question is who is Jesus he's Messiah the son of the living God the one that the father loves and the one that he is very well pleased with and the one you and I need to listen to we need to take up our cross and follow him our trials are meant to leave us seeing Jesus only. Several years ago, a policeman pulled over a car. He got out and asked for the driver's registration and license. The driver said to him, well, uh, was I driving improperly? Uh, Did I run through a stop sign? Was I speeding? And the police said, no. Was I driving erratically? No, you weren't driving erratically. Well, why are you pulling me over? And the policeman simply said, I... I saw you wave your fist at that lady in the Hummer who cut you off. I saw you shouting, and when you finally stopped, I saw you waving your fist at her and yelling something, and your face was filled with anger. The driver said, But none of these are a crime, are they? The policeman said, No, but I saw your bumper sticker that said, Jesus loves you, and so do I. And so I thought for sure that this car must be stolen. I wonder if someone looks at you and hears you say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And then watch, you, watch as you live like you live, if they don't think this is a false testimony. Remember, hard times, dark times, are designed to show us that Jesus is the light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray by your grace and your mercy that you will open our eyes to see the truth. That even in the midst of these difficult days, while we do struggle and it's easy to get down and our patience grows thin and our hope sometimes seems gone, may we turn our eyes upon Jesus to look full in his wonderful face so that the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. In his name we pray, amen.